Time to Travel with Karen Key. And a very good evening to you and welcome to this week's edition of Time to Travel. On the show this evening, I'll be chatting to Lindsay Grattan Cooper, whose book Remote, A Story of St. Helena, has just been published. Andre Horrams, a sustainable engineer with Ecolution Consulting, will be on the line and we'll be chatting about his involvement with Hotel Verdi, having been awarded a six-star rating by the Green Building Council of South Africa. Nikki Rousseau-Schmidt, Festival Manager of the Pick and Pay Neisner Oyster Festival, will be joining us and she'll be telling us what to expect from this year's festival. Travel writer Kerry Harvey will be online and she'll be telling us about her recent trip from Pretoria to Cape Town aboard Rovos Rail. And it sounds absolutely fabulous and the most decadent thing you could possibly wish to do. And then I caught up with Sarah Duff, who you may remember took a year off to travel the world. And she's currently in Berlin and I caught up with her there so that she could tell us about the time that she spent in the Atacama Desert in Chile. And a reminder, there's a list of available documents for time to travel. You can find them on Facebook. Just go to travel on SAFM or you can email me travel at safm.co.za. Well, that's the lineup for this evening. I do hope you'll stay with me and enjoy the show here on SAFM. Want to find out how to grow or start a manufacturing business? Then you need to be at the Manufacturing Indaba Conference and Exhibition on 29 and 30 June at Emperor's Palace. Proudly hosted by the City of Egoruleni, a partnership that works. Register now on manufacturingindaba.co.za or call 011-463-9184. The SABC has signed a code of conduct that is enforced by the Broadcasting Complaints Commission of South Africa. Under the code, we are committed to giving news that is accurate, comment that's fair, and programming that is not harmful, does not amount to hate speech or violence or explicit sex. If you think we are not living up to that code, then you can inform the Broadcasting Complaints Commission of South Africa. Direct any complaints in writing to the BCCSA. P.O. Box 412-365, Craig Hall 2024. That's the BCCSA, P.O. Box 412-365, Craig Hall 2024. Send a fax to 011-326-3198 or an email to bccsa at nabsa.co.za. For more information, please visit bccsa. Time to travel with Karen Key. Well, we've spoken quite often on the show about the island of St. Helena, and this evening I'm joined by Lindsay Grattan Cooper, who found herself living there for nearly 10 years, and she's now written a book about her experiences called Remote, a Story of St. Helena. Lindsay, good evening. Welcome to the show. Hello, good evening. Um, the story about your life there, it seems almost, to, you, well, you bought a second home there, but you seemed very comfortable and at home. What was it about St. Helena that drew you there in the first place? Well, I have no idea. I first went there as a young girl in um, 1969, stepped ashore and just felt I'd come home. It was a, a curious thing. I just fell in love with the place. And I have kept a very close contact with it ever since, all these years. And in 1999... Um, I, the opportunity arose to buy a house there, so my husband and I bought a lovely um, old Georgian house um, built in about 1794 and um, uh, deciding to use it as a holiday house, but that didn't work out because we realized it wasn't a lock up and go. So uh, it turned out that for 10 years I lived there 
um, my daughter joined me when she left school. She fell in love with it too. Came for six months of a gap year, never went home. <laughs> <laughs> and um, my my husband and son commuted twice a year to come and see me, and I came back to Cape Town once a year. Was it the remoteness? Do you think, Lindsay? Um, no, it was just that, well, <laughs> the remoteness took some time to get used to. Um, it's a different way of life over there, and I think um, it, the island is a very charming place. It's very unique. It's totally different from anywhere else um, that I had been, and um, it's a beautiful, beautiful, stunningly beautiful island. It's full of charm. Um, its people are very friendly. It's got a fascinating history, and the remoteness certainly lent... Um, a theme to it that was quite different from any other sort of life. It, you, you know, your 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 life. The only ship that goes there it calls about once a month. And uh, back in ten years ago, it sometimes went to England, so it wasn't as much as once a month. Um, and it was your lifeline. It brings everything: all the mail, all the people, all the cargo you need. And without the ship, you're absolutely stuck there in the middle of the South Atlantic Ocean. Because of that, I would imagine that the community would be very close. They would all know, everybody else would know who they were. And I was speaking to someone who had just come back from Ireland. And the, some, somebody in Ireland, when they were asked if they were local to the area, he said, the person said, no, no, he, you're only local here once you're dead and buried and pushing up daisies. You know, he'd been living there for over 40 years and wasn't yet considered a local. <laughs> now, is it like, like that, that there? I think <clears throat> the islanders, a lot of the islanders um, know each other. Most of them do, I think. Um, there are about 4,800 people there now. There were 5,000. 500 when I was there, um, and it is a close community, but, um, you know, there's only one town, and everybody comes to it for, for shopping and for events. So you were quite well accepted? Yes, so I was. I, I, I think so. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> we've, made, <laughs> we've made a lot of friends there, and... Um, you know, I sort of entered into, I'm, I'm a, a bit of a doer, and I like the, the small community aspect of mm-hmm. St. Helena. Um, I entered into a lot of things and worked, got myself embroiled in various charities. And, you know, you, you can't live isolated there. A lot of people say to me, oh, I'd love to go there and write a book um, because it would be so quiet. But life is not like that at all. You, you've actually got to be mixed up with the population, doing things and... Um, you know, they're all so friendly. You want to, you want to mix yourself up with them. So you got, you did things a little backwards. You came back here and wrote a book. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, in between times, I started writing it there. So oh. I was keeping notes. So the book is very much based on letters to my sister and various friends. So that you know the details I mm. got right. Uh, um, but um, yes, I did finish it when I came back. Then why did you come back if you were so happy there? I, uh, I was very happy there, um, but it is a difficult place to live, and I was, I was ill. It was illness that brought me back. I was iller than I thought I was, and um, I just was uh, too tired to carry on, really. Um, I needed to be close to medical attention, which is better here. And um, so I came home, and um, my daughter has subsequently taken over the house. She's <laughs> married to a St. Helenian. 
And uh, so the house is still very much in the family, and we're going over there later this year um, to visit her. And it's, you know, the doors and windows will all be open for us and be like going home. Now, you, the, when you were still living there, you were part of the initial discussions on the introduction of the airport and the hotel that's coming. And I've spoken about that at length on the show because a lot of people are saying, gosh, well, it'll be so much quicker now to get there by plane than it was by ship. But it's always, every time I do these interviews about that, it always concerns me that something about the island and the nature of the island is going to be lost. Oh, yes. I wasn't officially involved in the airport no, at all. No, but you were there. No, you were there when it was all going on. I was, I was there right from the beginning. Mm. And um, right from the beginning and all the way through, I've been, I, I've rather opposed the airport. Um, not because I want St. Lena to get stuck into a, an old-fashioned no. rut, but because it is so unique. Mm. And it is, I think the airport is trying to make it just like everywhere else. But it isn't just like everywhere else. It does not have the beaches and the palm trees and the climate that tourists are going to be looking for as they fly in. I think what the attraction, in my mind anyway, the attraction of St. Helena was always the fact that it was so remote and it was almost like a little island sort of lost in time. And which worries me now with, with hordes of tourists pouring in, it isn't going to be that anymore. So when you go there expecting that as a tourist, it's not going to be that anymore. It's, it's it, you're absolutely right, but it's not going to be the same. And and I do mourn that. I'm very, very sad for it in a way. Um, but, you know, the, the islanders themselves, the St. Lenians, in fact, didn't really vote for the island. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, they, they had a referendum in 2002, and it was the um, St. Lenians who were working on Falklands and the Ascension Island who saw it as a quick way home for holidays. And oh. their vote swung the, the whole referendum towards the airport. But the St. Helenians, in fact, hardly turned up at the polls. And uh, so, you know, it's all been done despite their arguments. I wondered if maybe the, the thinking was that if they were you know, bringing tourists in, there would be more work opportunities, and so maybe more of them wouldn't have to leave the island to look for work. And I thought maybe that was a, um, you know, one of the, the thoughts about, behind it. But now you're telling me that they weren't really even bothering to come to the poll. No, they weren't really. I mean, uh, they, they, there's a, a clique on the island that's very enthusiastic. There's another one that was sort of halfway enthusiastic, and they're now not so sure now that it's all happening. And then there's the clique that um, really never wanted it in the first place. But um, the, the backbone of this whole airport issue is the British government, the British taxpayers actually pay for St. Helena. Mm. It's, a, it's entirely dependent on Britain for their money. And Britain has decided that St. Helena is a bit of a millstone around their necks. <sighs> and they thought that if they built an airport, it Make, make it viable through tourism. But, um, you know, it's, it's, I, I just think it's the wrong place to do that. I would have liked to see a faster ship and yes. better marketing for the island mm. because that is the expedition that one makes to St. Helena. At the moment, it's five days, five mm. nights by sea um, to St. Helena on one ship. And... Um, well, we can only wait and see what happens. You know, it's, it's, it might surprise us all. It might surprise us all. And I, I, I hope for St. Linda's sake that it does surprise us all because it's such a charming place. Um, 
and I'd hate to see um, its its uniqueness lost. But you know, I, I've, I've I've never had a vision of great happiness with the airport there, with the with the kind of tourism they're expecting. But um, it'll take mm-hmm. a long time to sort it out. But I hope in the end they do. I hope everybody's but, happy in the end. That's that's the bottom line. I, but, I sincerely you know. hope so. And we mentioned very briefly at the beginning of this, this chat about what you can find there. And for those people that I know that have been, they talk about the beauty of the island and the, the historical significance of the island. And that is a big draw card for those who at this stage have managed to get there. And it, oh, it's just beautiful. Ab- absolutely. Um, it's, it's very much a niche market, actually. Um, the, the people who go there are usually slightly older people and, and interested. They've usually been everywhere else and now want something different, or they're interested in history, they're interested in hiking. And it, it is a stunningly beautiful island, and it has a great variety of beauty in it. And the history is totally absorbing. I mean, everybody who has ever been anybody in the Western history has passed through St. Helena, and they're wonderful stories um, about all these people, lists and lists of them. And... Um, Oh, I mean, Napoleon, of course, yes. lends a tremendous cachet to the place. <laughs> yes, he was always so proud that he ordered our wine from Constantia here to go over there. The van der Constance <laughs> yes. was, was, was shipped out to him. It's, 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 a, good, it's a very good selling point yes. for, its wi- for our <laughs> yes, wine. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but now your book, Lindsay, how's it doing? It's just recently been published by Porcupine Press. Available That's, at all good bookstores, I take it? Um. I sincerely hope so. Um, I, I haven't actually been in to look, but we did have a launch about uh, two weeks ago at Cork Bay Books, and that went extremely well. Um, I sold a lot of books there, and I've sold a lot from home before it ever got into the bookshop. Oh, right, okay. And um, so I'm hoping to see a couple on the shelves when I start cruising around bookshelves, uh, bookshops. Well, I have to say, it's a very easy read. I must admit, I haven't had the time to get to the very end of it, but I'm engrossed as far as I have got. Oh, you it's, are it's, reading it. I, oh, absolutely. Because um, I'm, I'm fascinated by the island. It just absolutely fascinates me anyway. It and is I a love the story. Island. You know, your, your story, it's, it's one of those very easy reads. You almost feel like you were there when I was reading it. And I love your photographs. I sort of wish there were more, but they were beautiful. I mean, some of the scenery that you've, you've taken pictures of, just incredible. Absolutely beautiful. There's so much variety there. There's such a barren, barren outside. It mm. was once described as a, as a, as a, a what is it, a, a poached egg. Oh, really? They said with the white on the outside <laughs> and the yolk in the middle. But um, more appropriate, I think, is a topaz, a topaz um, no, an emerald set in topaz. Mm. Um, because the outside rim is a bit startling when you approach by ship. It's very barren yes, until and you very get brown. And, uh, and once you drive inland, you come upon the startling scenery. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a lovely place, um, really. Well, and, uh, the, the one good thing possibly is for those who really want to go and weren't able to go because of the long boat trip, maybe now we'll go on the plane and, you know, 
It, it will be much shorter, yes. Absolutely. It, it'll, it'll be about five hours mm. in South Africa. Yeah, so, so it makes a huge it's a lot, lot better than five nights on the ship. So, you know, <laughs> you can go. And you also, I think it's a week they were telling me that you, they fly, they're going to be flying in on a Saturday and out again. You can come back on the following Saturday. So it's a week that you'll be yes. there. Mm. And that, that is good. For, it's a good length of time for people who've yes. never been there before. Well, I, I, friends of ours went on one of these cruise ship things and they, they stopped off there for the afternoon. I said, what on earth are you going to do in an afternoon? I mean, you need to be there for a week. You can't see yes. anything in an afternoon. Yes, and then when I they mean, got there, they couldn't even get off the ship because the water was too bad and they couldn't get on the tender. And they were stuck. Yeah. The RMS mm. St. Helena will always get you off from yes. hell or high water. Yes. But, well, you have to get uh, off. Yes. But the cruise ships are very dicey. Yeah, they, so they, they didn't even get off for the afternoon. So I said oh, maybe it was a good a thing. I said, I said maybe it was a good thing because I, I would have been extremely frustrated if I'd been them trying to see anything in just an afternoon. You know, what yeah. Would they have seen yeah, in an afternoon? To see, and some yeah. of them just get four hours, and yes. uh, it's not enough. Not even remotely close. No. So, you know, <laughs> so there are, I suppose there are pros and cons to all of that. But, Lindsay, I have to tell you, your book, as far as I've got into it so far, loving it. And I really recommend that anyone who has an interest in St. Helena and some of the history of it, because it's all in there, and your time on, on the island, really get hold of a copy of this book. It's really fabulous. It's a really good read. And we've got that perfect weather for it now. You know, sit inside in front of a fire, <laughs> yes. glass of red thank wine, and the book. Perfect weather for the book. So go and have a read. But thank you so much for your time this evening, for joining me on the show. Well, thank you for chatting. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you. Good. Good night to you. Bye-bye. Lindsay Grattan Cooper's book is called Remote, A Story of St. Helena. It's published by Porcupine Press. And you can find out more about the book or any of the other books on their website. It's porcupinepress.co.za. And as Lindsay and I were saying, it's available in all good bookstores. Time to travel with Karen Key. Hotel Verdi was recently awarded the highest accolade of a six-star rating in the Green Star SA Existing Building Performance Tool with 82 points. It's a first for her till in South Africa by the Green Building Council of South Africa. And joining me now is Andre Harams. He's a sustainability engineer with Ecolution Consulting. Andre, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening. Thank you. First of all, congratulations on the award. Thank you. That's uh, a real honor. It's, it's amazing. I mean, the first hotel, there are other buildings that have been rated to this level, but no no other hotels. Yeah, very very exciting to, to actually just partner with the council and, and pilot. It was uh, probably aware that it was part of a yes. pilot phase of this existing building uh, tool, and it was a real nice collaboration with the, with the Green Building Council and us to make sure that the tool can also accommodate hotel. And the hope is obviously that many others will follow in the, in the footsteps to also contributes towards a more responsible tourism industry or travel industry. Now, this thing is called the Green Star SA, and it's based on the Australian version, because, I mean, there's all these different ones around the world, in the UK and America, but the Green Building Council of South Africa took their lead from the Australian one. Yes, um, I believe that, that the strategy is taken for, for all the design and construction rating tools. This one, however, is for the existing, for the operational uh, component of a building's life. And there it also uh, draws quite heavily on other international rating systems, such as the one from the United States. So it's, it's really, I think they've taken international best practice from all over and made it, adapted it to the local conditions and the local building industry um, and the way local buildings are operated and, and, and put the tool out for, for the local industry to embrace it. Now, for the Hotel Verde to get to this point of being awarded the six-star rating, did you have to do anything extra special or was it pretty much most of it in place already? 
Karen, I think we spoke a year ago, yes, we did. roughly, um, mm. when, when the two of us spoke about the certification that we had just achieved at the time for the design and construction yes. of the hotel. That was from the United States Green Building Council for the Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design yes. um, Rating Tool. And there we were also awarded um, very high accolades, actually platinum, which is the highest. And, and what that really just goes to show is that I think there was quite a bit of thought put into the project up front to make sure that it's not just designed and constructed properly and efficiently, but that it's designed and constructed in such a way that it will facilitate a sustainable operation. So it was really a continuation of that phase of the project into the operation to get the right staff members on board and Samantha Annandale and her team that, that's managing the hotel are doing a fantastic job at that to embrace what was put in place and, and the principles and policies that were put in place during the design and construction to, to see it through into the operational phase, which is ongoing, obviously, for many, many more years to come. And the thing about a rating like this, though, is that it's only valid for three years. So it's not as if you get this and you think, oh, well, now we can just cruise, you know, because we've got it now. You've got to keep on your toes because after three years, if you're not still at the same level, it's gone. Well, not just that. You always want to improve. Firstly, yes. for your guests, you want to make sure that you, you keep enticing them with, with uh, coming back to see what else has been happening. But also, I'm quite sure that the Green Building Council will ratchet up the requirements. So if we want <laughs> to achieve um, at Hotel Valley the, the six star again in three years' time, we obviously have to make sure that we don't rest on any laurels. Yes. Uh, but we keep up what's been happening there and, and um, just prove that the industry is growing, that there's more opportunities happening, that there's different ways of doing it. And, and collectively... Um, improve from, from the nice space that has now been gained. Do you think that generally in the tourism industry it's, it's something like a green hotel is not considered by possibly some hoteliers to be worth the effort of putting all that effort and time and money into that, but yet it does actually improve the guest experience? Obviously, I mean, Hotel Verde is living proof of that. But yeah, I, a lot of, I mean, do you think that there's, there's a bit of resistance to going all the way out to get something like this? I think there's still the misconception that it has to cost a lot mm. of money extra. It is certainly uh, something extra to consider, and, and how I often term it is that it's an additional lens that you do business through or that you observe any business decision through. So typically, business just looks at cost and, and effectiveness of, of an option or of a choice. But does it serve the purpose? Does it do what it's supposed to? And what is the cost? How do we keep the cost down? Now there's an additional lens or an additional parameter that's considered, and that's that of environmental responsibility or efficiency on, on multiple levels. And just adding that to the way decisions are made, to the way policies and procedures are written, to the way um, people are engaged, uh, that's really how, how we do it. So it's, an, it's, it's a slightly different way of looking at it, an additional way of looking at it, but it doesn't have to cost the earth, and it doesn't have to be an, a huge additional burden. So I think once that misconception has, has been worked out, the benefits will, will be, I believe the benefits really overweigh the owner of the hotels, um, seeing that on the bottom line that the benefits already overweigh the, the additional effort, and, and hopefully soon many other um, businesses in the tourism industry will follow suit. But, you know, we often talk on the show about the different way that people travel now. People don't just go somewhere to go and say, oh, well, you know, there's Table Mountain or there's the big hole in Kimberley or there's whatever. They actually want to interact with the people, first of all. It's a whole personal, on a personal level type of thing. But also the tourists now are very, very green conscious. They want right. to know that you are doing whatever you can environmentally to make a difference. They don't want to come and leave this huge, big carbon footprint thing when they've left. So yeah, they're thinking about that now. Yeah. So one of the things that's actually happening at the hotel is how all of these interventions are used to inform anyone who's interested. The guests, the staff members are obviously uh, educated about it too, so they can share the message. Um, 
suppliers, any visitors. There's lots of school groups that come through and, and um, also the communities around us that are engaged in, in the exciting stuff that's happening there. And that, I think, is often also picked up by the guests. And if one looks at um, the views on, on the likes of TripAdvisor, that really shines through is how the, the sustainability initiatives are shared to the extent that the hotel is gone and how, that, um, how the staff is involved in that and the level of service that they actually provide to the guests as a result because they are sharing such a positive message. Their own buy-in as a result grows because they are seeing the positive uh, emotion and reaction that it invokes in the visitors. And it's really an upwards, uplifting spiral. So this is obviously the way to go. Yes, I, I certainly believe so. Yeah, I'm sure you do, but I mean, this, you, you've seen, you know, living proof of it at this hotel that has gone all out to become this amazingly green destination, and it's yeah. now racking up the awards, and people are noticing. Yeah, yeah, it, it really is. Um, I think such a heartwarming um, and humbling experience to also be recognised by the local green building council mm. um, for for this accolade, and, and we're really thankful for them for their support to you know to add another really really. Um, yeah, something that really means a lot to us, to, to our set of accolades that, that they're ready. Um, and we look forward to you know, a lot of future collaboration with them to see what else can be done. And it's just, it would be nice if, if, if more and more businesses became aware of this and realized that it actually adds to their service offering, Precisely. something like this. So, yeah. you know, to get that word out there and that because we need to take responsibility, we need to do something like this. Yeah. Status quo is just no longer good enough. No, absolutely not. And I was just looking at the the impact category, the environmental impact categories that you have to um, become, that you rate it on. I mean, it's quite literally on everything, down from the management to innovation to indoor environmental quality, energy, transport, water, materials, land use, and ecology, emissions, and innovation. I mean, it's 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 a wide range of things that they look at. Yeah, and, and that's what I really find great about the. The tool is that it's holistic, um, and that was always the strategy that was applied at the hotel, that we consider everything um, with regards to sustainability uh, thinking, and, and not just, you know, some things in isolation, like put efficient lighting in and, and give ourselves a pack on, yeah. on the shoulder, yeah. but it's a holistic approach. It touches on all aspects. All of those that are important to doing business, to keeping people happy in the space, is obviously something that, like indoor environment quality, for example, is often overlooked. It's with designing and, and, and operating buildings for the people within those buildings. And it makes absolute sense to keep those spaces as comfortable as possible, maximizing natural light, um, minimizing any chemicals that are, that are in the air and oozing out of, the, I don't know, the paints and coatings um, to make sure that the, the guest is happy and wants to come back. The staff member um, is more productive because the air is healthier for them to, to breathe in. So those aspects are so vital and, and just often overlooked. And really when one... When one opens oneself up to consider these things, is often that value unlocked and not just with throwing tons of money at it. So it all is very possible. And as you've shown, it's, it's worthwhile in the end. But Andre, thank you very much indeed for joining us and congratulations to all concerned once again. Amazing so achievement. Much. And uh, I'll be speaking with you again shortly, I'm sure, with the next <laughs> amazing award you guys are going to get. But thank you for your time this evening. Likewise, yeah. Thanks so Thanks, much. Thanks, Andre. Thank you. Good night to you. Bye-bye. Right, Bye-bye. Andre Horams is a sustainability engineer with Ecolution Consulting. For more information on Hotel Verdi, take a look at the website, hotelverdi.co.za, and Verdi is V-E-R-D-E. And if you want more information on the Green Building Council of South Africa, their website is gbcsa.org.za. Time to travel with Karen Key.
Well, it's almost time once again for the Pick and Pay Nisner Oyster Festival. And to tell us what to expect at this year's festival, I'm joined now by Festival Manager Nikki Rousseau-Schmidt. Nikki, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening. Thank you very much. It seems like it was just the other day. I mean, these years are going by so fast. I don't know how you guys keep up because you have so much going on and it happens almost you blink and it's next year already. Yes, I know, and we never stop working, no, I'm you know. Sure you don't. <laughs> so it always coincides with the winter school holidays. So this year, when is it running from? From the 3rd to the 12th of July, which is the midweek after Western Cape School Holidays. Okay, and how is, it's over that week, and you've it's well, it's literally over 10 days. Over 10 days, two weekends, yes. The first weekend is the uh, Momentum Weekend August Nice, a cycle tour presented by Rotary, which is a mountain bike and the road races, and the second weekend is the very famous, I don't know if it's infamous, the um, Momentum Cape Times <laughs> Marathon, Forest Marathon, Half Marathon. You've got some wonderful new things this year as well. Yes, we've got, you know, Oysters is obviously the VIP of the yes. festival. So um, there's, um, on the Sunday, there's an Oyster Bubbly and Chocolate Experience. Oh, that sounds which, good. Yes, I think it's a match made in heaven, which you can taste different oysters, different bubblies, and then also handmade chocolates from the garden route. So that I think will be fantastic. And then... The cycle tour added a forest family dam ride, and it's called a dam ride because they're actually going to visit the various um, dams supplying nice with water in the forest. So it's not a, it's an easy, easy ride, fun ride, 30 kilometers on the Sunday for the whole family. Kids 12 years and older can take part. So I think that is going to be a wonderful outing, and it also showcases what Nisner is, is known for, you know, our beautiful forest and our mountain bike race. But that's the one thing I've noticed in all the information over the years about the festival, Nikki, is that you make you go all out to make this a very, very family event, a fun family event. So there's always loads going on for the children. Yes, no, absolutely. We've launched um, four years ago, we've launched, or five years ago, and we've launched the Young Oyster Festival, which is for the little ones, basically two to nine-year-olds, and that's a full-day program for them. And then um, last year, we actually started to launch events for teenagers, a triathlon, a junior golf tournament. So we definitely, um, if there's something for everyone to do. Everyone can be happy, and there's also enough time for just downtime if you want to come for a holiday and you just want to go on a cruise or just watch the sunset, you know. So I think it's a, the perfect holiday time. You can be as active as you want to be. The one thing I was really impressed with and I thought was a really wonderful idea was the Lemonade Day. That, that's a whole, that's a new thing. Yes, that's a new thing. It's being launched, um, it has launched in um, America, and it's the first time that it will happen in South Africa, where they trade kids how to be entrepreneurs. So all of them are going to make lemonade, and the training is happening as we speak on how to make it, how to do a business plan, how to work out their costs, and then at the festival, they're going to sell the lemonade to the public and have that experience what it takes to set up your own business um, and to actually interact with the customers as well. So I love that. looking forward to that. I think that's amazing. And the other thing that's really fun, because kids probably aren't normally allowed to do it, is the pavement art. <laughs> yes, that's a good malaise. Um, fantastic art coming out there. Every year I'm amazed if you look at the it's over a two-day period, and it's amazing um, what the kids can do on that pavement art. You know, obviously weather depending. And I see there's a huge gold fund coming from Cape Town, but if yes. it's this weekend, be very happy because then it's bound to be sunshine. Yes. We're coming to the festival. We're freezing here at the moment, so, yeah. <laughs> we won't send the rain and wind up to you just yet. And then as, we can send it now. <laughs> can we send it now? Okay. Um, but then, as usual, you've got all the classics, so people mustn't worry if they've been before. They think, oh, they, if they have all these new things, what about all the stuff I like to do? You've, yes, all the regular stuff is still happening. 
Everything is still happening. The Navy ships are coming in. Um, oh, through the heads. Yeah. to come yeah. in on the 7th of July. Um, and we have the NISA Wine Festival, the Flavors of NISA, which showcase oysters. We have, for comedy, very exciting this year. We've got Mark Lottering. Oh, my in goodness. The That's amazing. Yes. Yeah, on the Thursday. Um, and then, yeah, jazz, whiskey and jazz cruises um, and whiskey tastings and really something for everyone, you know. We've also the 19 Tabasco Oyster Hotspots. They sell and serve oysters in all different formats. So, um, yeah, depending on what your like is, you will definitely find something to do. Now, this is always the question I worry about asking you because it's so near to the time. Accommodation, is there any left? The weekends are a bit tight. Um, but the nicer tourism will definitely find you something. You know, we also work with the surrounding areas, which is um, Brenton and Sea, Biffles Bay, Fetchfield. It's very um, close. I mean, it's yeah. Like... So they'll definitely find you something. And midweek, I believe, there's, there's still space um, in Nice. You know, Nice is famous for the number of guest houses. There. Yes. So we gear to to have lots of visitors. So no, definitely, if people are looking for something they cannot find, they can just contact Nice Tourism, and the staff there are fantastic, and they will definitely find them something. Yeah, I'll give out the yeah, number yeah. for that in a moment, and then people can call them. And the the costs for the events, Nikki, is it different for each event? different? Where do people find out more about that sort of thing? And Do they need to book beforehand, book when they get there? How does that all work? It's definitely for some functions, like the Flavors of Nisa event and the Shuckle, those sell out every year. So um, I've spoken to the Bubbly and uh, Oyster Bubbly and Chocolate Experience, and they've only got 30 tickets left. Sure. So you definitely need to, for some events, best is to visit the program on the on the website, um, which is www.pnpoysterfestival.co.za, and there's a full program on there. Have a look, and the contact details are on there. Um, the cost range from free to um, 120 rand for the wine festival to 175 rand for flavors, 120 for um, the comedy evening. So, you know, it ranges in between that. Um, but people must book if they want to come, especially for the lifestyle events. Um, some of the, the sport events you can still register the day before, some of them even on the morning before. But it's always better because especially... Midweek, we have that Featherbed Trail Run, which mm. is one of the iconic trail runs yes. in South Africa. And Total Sports Xterra, which is happening on the Thursday at um, Field of Dreams at Pizzoula. And, and, you know, it's always better to just register before email and say, you know, can, when can we come? You don't want to pitch up and then you can't get in. No, yeah. And all these, these events for the children, most of them, obviously you said the Lemon Day South Africa, that's already happening. That's for the local children. So that's not for yes. children coming into Neisner. But all the other things, obviously the golf tournament, I'm assuming they'd have to book in for that. But that's things like the pavement that. art and those kinds of things? Pavement art, they can just pitch on the day. That's all fine, but the Young Oyster Festival program, um, which they have, um, they have cooking classes and art crafts, uh, there's better to book because those classes fill up quickly. And then with the triathlon, the team uh, to touch triathlon, they can actually just go on the day. And there's also a doodle box adventure race for the little ones, and there they can also go on the morning. Oh, if you're listening to this, you would have figured out by now that we haven't even scratched the surface of what's going to be happening out there in <laughs> Neisner. We've just given you a little taste of the thing, well, a taste of Neisner, there you go, of what's happening at the festival, because if we had to go through everything, we'd be here till tomorrow morning. So yeah. go and have a look if you're interested. I'll give out the website address again in a moment. But... For all the information to find out how much things cost, what you have to book for, where it's happening, when it's happening, what's happening, 
it's all there and you'll be able to find everything. We just wanted to sort of give you a little taste so that you get excited and want to go. So as, as Nikki says, they'll find us some accommodation for you. It's not too late, so, but don't leave it too much later because then, you know, that you can't leave it till the day before and then expect there to be something. So at this stage, there is still somewhere for you to stay, but I'll give out all that information in a moment. Nikki, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the show this evening and have a fabulous festival. Pleasure. Thank you. Stay warm. Yes, you too. Thank okay. you. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Nikki Rousseau-Schmidt is the festival manager for the upcoming Pick and Pay Neisner Oyster Festival. It's taking place from the 3rd to the 12th of July. For more information, the website is pnpoysterfestival.co.za or you can connect with them on Twitter. It's at Oyster Festival or on Facebook, Neisner Oyster Festival. And if you're looking for accommodation, call Neisner Tourism on 44 382 Time to travel with Karen Key. Kerry Harvey. Time to travel with Karen Key. Kerry Harvey's back with us again this evening, and this time she's been swanning about or being driven about, if you like, on a train. She did the Rovos Rail. Oh, gosh, it sounds just fabulous. Kerry, good evening. Welcome to the show. Hi, Corin. Good to be back with you. Okay. So you've been off on Rovos Rail. I, I always imagine Rovos Rail being the lap of luxury. Am I right or not? You're absolutely right, yes. Oh. I think it's actually quite um, something for all South Africans to be proud of, to be honest. It's considered to be the most luxurious train in the world, and it's thoroughly South African, which I think is quite awesome. So where did you get on and where did you get off? This particular trip was from Pretoria to Cape Town, which is actually an absolutely awesome trip because it can be it can be done over a weekend. So, you know, for people wanting to treat themselves and do something really special, they don't even have to encroach on, on the working week. We hopped on at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon in Pretoria after having tea and sandwiches in their Capital Park station in Pretoria. They have their own Edwardian station as well. And being welcomed by the owner of Rovos, Rohan Force. So, yes, we departed on a Friday afternoon, and um, it really was a, an absolutely fabulous experience. It, there's no words, to be honest. It's so amazing. Now, what happens? Do you actually, does the train stop at various places? Do you get hop on, hop off, and have a look, or what do you just drive through or ride through? Um, it does through? stop in various places, but, you know, to be honest, in this case, Rovos is for the train, not the places. Mm. The Edwardian trains are so magnificently, perfectly, and intricately restored that you really don't want to get off um, yes you do stop you stop in on this particular trip you stop in kimberley for an excursion to the big hole and and you know around the a little around the town as well and then you stop again in mikey's fontaine and um, both of which are are great experiences because they have a historical element to them which is what the train's all about but truly the experience is on the train so tell me about on the train on the train is just a different world. Um, it really is like stepping back into the Edwardian era, just because of, as I was saying, the, the level of you know, attention to detail on the train. It's magnificent. Your suite is beautiful. Everything is, is period um, decor as well. The, the dining car is wooden paneled and has a tiny bit of a creak as the train moves, you know, just like it did in its heyday, with ceiling fans and beautiful white starched linen and magnificent cuisine, which, um, 
you know, it, I guess it shouldn't have been a surprise, but it was just heartwarming that so many international people are on this train, and the food is all thoroughly South African, the best Babwerti ever, and, you know, all milk tart and, you know, marula dishes and things like that, which is just a great way to show um, the delicious food that we have. It always fascinates me how they can produce such amazing food in such a tiny little kitchen that's swaying about on the train. Precisely, and it really is a minute kitchen. It would appear that the chef literally just pivots um, around the kitchen. It's so small, and it's a moving target, absolutely. Yes. But it is the, the food is not just absolutely delicious. The presentation is sublime. It's an all-round decadent and sort of, well, hopefully not once-in-a-lifetime experience. So, um, you know, it's, it's something that, yeah, it's, it's forever memorable. Now, in between the eating and the sleeping, are there lounges aboard? What are you doing with yourself? Yes, there's a, there's a sort of mid-train lounge. Um, again, you know, with wingbacks and, and decorated in period style. And uh, there's, that's where afternoon tea is served, a kind of a high tea that's, again, very beautiful, very decadent. Um, and there are books and uh, magazines. And, you know, it's, the whole experience is about slow travel and elegant travel as it used to be. So reading is encouraged and there are games and, you know, writing. You, you've given um, beautiful paper and pens so that you can write letters and postcards. And, you know, it's just almost a time warp sounds corny, but this is just stepping back and slowing down and appreciating. So, yes, there are lounge cars. There's also an observation car at the rear of the train. Um, which is open-fronted. That's really great to sit at the back and have an open-air experience of, of traveling through the Karoo or wherever you may be at the time. And you eventually ended up in Cape Town through the Hex River Valley, and that must have been lovely to look at through the windows or the open Beautiful. back. Beautiful. Absolutely stunning that you, you know, you're at ground level through the vineyards, and the Hex River is, as I mean, it's renowned for its beauty. So that was an, an absolutely amazing experience as well. Um, the whole trip, though, it's, you know, there are a lot of contrasts. You, you coming through the Karoo where you, it's obviously barren and you passing windmills and nothingness, as well as huge solar farms, in fact, that have been constructed in the Karoo, which was good to see. And then you coming to, to the vineyards, which are just sort of lush and fertile. So um, it's in such a short period of time, from a Friday afternoon, you know, to essentially a Sunday late afternoon, you have such a diversity of experiences. It's it's really amazing. It, it feels like, you know, a long holiday as opposed to a weekend getaway. It sounds absolutely fabulous. And one of those bucket list things that we need to save up for for a while. But uh, something, if you're wanting an experience like that, something definitely worth saving up for. And if I may also just say, Karen, this is, this is not the only route they do. They do loads of different routes, up to 28 days. They do Cape to Cairo and, you know, Cape to Namibia. They do Natal. They do Dar es Salaam from Pretoria. So it's there are many, many different routes. You'd be able to experience Africa in comfort and style and at a, at a really enjoyable pace. So uh, it's definitely a bucket list thing. <laughs> Right, so as you said, definitely on the bucket list. If people want to find out more information, Kerry, where can they go? Uh, the Rovos website, which is quite simply Rovos, R-O-V-O-S, dot com. There are also contact numbers which will be on the website uh, for Cape Town and Pretoria and email addresses that 
Just have a look at the website and it'll blow your mind. <laughs> we'll be saving from tomorrow, living on bread and water and putting all the pennies in the jar for our bucket list trip on Rovos Rail. I like, the sound, I like the sound of the Cape to Cairo one. That sounds fabulous. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah, well, we'll chat to you once you've done that, Kerry. When is that going to be? Oh, I, I, I hope it's soon. <laughs> what can I say? What can you say? Well, thank you so much for joining us this evening and telling us about something different, though, to do. Something not your normal thing that you do. But thank you very much for telling us about that. Thank you. I was chatting there with Kerry Harvey, and she's a travel writer, and she's just spent some time, lucky thing, on Rovos Rail during the Pretoria to Cape Town route. And if you'd like to find out more about the train and the trip and where all they go, have a look at the website. It's www.rovos.com, and Rovos is R-O-V-O-S. And if you'd like to find out more about Kerry and what she does and where she goes, you can have a look at her blog. It's www.kerry, K-E-R-I, Kerry-Harvey.com. Time to travel with Karen Key. Sarah Duff's joining us this evening. Now, you might have heard quite a while ago when she was last on the show that she was actually deciding to take a year off and go traveling around the world for a year. And she's been updating her blog. It's duffssuitcase.com. Go and have a look at that. And like me, you probably won't like her after the first or second blog that you read. The photographs are fantastic. And you sort of think, I just really wish I was there. But she's joining us now. She's currently in Berlin. And she's joining us to chat to us this evening about Chile's Atacama Desert, where she spent some time. Sarah, good evening. Welcome back to the show. It's been quite a while. Hi, Karen. Thanks for having me back. Well, the Atacama Desert. Now, it's not a, what we would consider reading through your blog. It seems to be slightly different to what we would consider a desert to look like. Yeah, it's pretty unusual looking in that it's volcanic area. So you've got these conical volcanoes beaming smoke on the, along the skyline. And there's some steaming geysers and there's turquoise, salt lakes and thermal pools. It's quite a different looking desert to uh, what we used to from the Kalahari or the Namas. I was reading your description of Moon Valley. I mean, that sounded quite, I mean, not quite. It's completely different to anything we'd ever expect to find in a desert. Yes, well, so it's um, rose-colored rocks kind of forming into ridged mountains. So it's all volcanic rock, and it really does look like something from another planet. And actually, a lot of movies have been shot in the Atacama, where the Atacama stood in either for Mars or Venus. And Moon Valley is covered in salt, thick salt crystals. So you walk along crunching on these salt crystals, and I even had a lick. I, can't, I couldn't help myself, so I had to have a lick. And in the late afternoon, as it's getting cooler, you can actually hear all of the crystals crunching. So it's just quite an um, atmospheric experience of being in this very otherworldly valley surrounded by these hills and these rocks and sound of salt crunching. Now, what exactly did you do while you were in the desert, other than walk around crunching salt crystals? So I did a, quite a fair amount of hiking was the best way to see the landscape. And, and I also went horse riding on a beautiful Anglo-Arabian horse who struggled a little bit. But the, it's a very high altitude there. So, you know, even if you're from Joburg and you think you're used to sort of high altitude places, quite a different story when you get to the Atacama. You can struggle to breathe and feel lightheaded. So although I enjoyed the horse ride, I felt a bit sorry for my horse who was panting away as we were climbing up the sand dunes. I went mountain biking, uh, also a great way to see the Atacama, although it's a lot of rocky, rocky roads in the hot desert sun. And then I cooled off in a salt lagoon where it's so salty that you can't swim, so you just float around. It's something like um, the Dead Sea almost. 
Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, similar, similar kind of thing. And then it's actually, as you get higher in the desert, um, it actually gets quite cool, even though the sun is beating down. So there are several hot springs spread out ar- across the area, and obviously they're heated from the geothermal activity. And so when you go higher up in the desert, it does get quite cool, even though the sun's beating down. So it's great to be able to get into these hot springs and sub- completely uh, you know, submerge yourself and stay warm while the outside temperature is pretty chilly. So chilling out in hot springs or actually warming up in hot springs is one of my favorite activities in the desert. And then another great thing to do in the Atacama is stargazing. Mm. Um, It's one of the best places in the world to do stargazing. Because it's a desert, it's very dry and there are hardly no towns for miles. So the night sky is completely unpolluted and beautiful, beautiful to just sit outside with a Pisco Star, which is a Chilean cocktail, and look up at the stars. Did you stay actually in the desert itself? Yes, I stayed at a lodge called Explorer, which is a fantastic lodge, very stylish, uh, minimalist design. But the philosophy of the lodge is to try and get people out of their rooms. So it's not about sitting in your room and ordering room service. It's about getting out of your room and doing adventures. So every day you sit down with a team of guides and decide what you want to do. And there's so much. I think they have about 50 different activities that you can do, everything from climbing right to the top of a volcano, which takes a couple of days to climatize to, even heading into the desert in Bolivia, to horse riding, mountain biking, hiking, you name it, they're doing it. Uh, it is said that this is where life began. Yeah, well, life began as a molten sea of volcanoes, as I understand it. And we had a guide who took us to um, a very high-altitude geyser field, and we were watching these steaming, sulfuric, bubbling pools, and he said that there's bacteria inside those steaming vents, and that's, well, that's where we all came from originally. Okay. <laughs> the one thing I didn't know was that um, in the general area, it was 150 kilometers from where you were, but it was in the general sort of area, was the world's largest or the world's biggest radio telescope is there. I didn't know that. Yes, yeah. So they, they're looking for signs of life out there. That's what they're trying to do. So they've got a whole lot of radio telescopes pointed out to the galaxy and they're waiting for um, a signal from another planet. And this is a, so, it's um, a big uh, international partnership that's going on there as well, I believe. Yes, yes, yes. yes. So it's um, some of the world's, I think, uh, most high-profile astronomers have been uh, involved in it. And it's been, I think, it's a partnership with Chile and the States and some other European countries. Now, how did you actually get there, Sarah? It can't be the easiest place in the world to get to. No, it's pretty much on the other side of the world from South Africa. Um, so nowhere in South America is that easy to get to. The only direct flight from South Africa to South America is to Sao Paulo and Brazil. So wherever you go, you're going to head to Sao Paulo and then fly it from there. So what I did was I actually went from Argentina into Chile and I took an overnight bus ride. Supposed to be one of the most scenic bus rides in South America. You wind through these high mountain passes through the desert and cross the border with Chile at about 5,000 meters above sea level, which means you can hardly breathe or walk. So it was definitely a memorable journey, but um, an easier way to get there would be to fly from Sao Paulo to Santiago in Chile, and then there's a short flight that you can take up from Santiago north into the Atacama. So you, but you'd actually been staying in Argentina for a couple of months anyway, so it was easier for you just to go from there. 
Yes, exactly. I'd been in Argentina for about two months, and I was traveling around the north of Argentina, so it was easy to get into Chile from there. And uh, it, was, it was quite hectic for you with the altitude going across the border. Yeah, I really struggled. Other people on the bus seemed to be okay, but I really I felt very dizzy. Um, I felt like I couldn't breathe, and I was waiting in the queue at the border to get my passport stamped, and one of the border guards saw me, and he just said, don't worry, you're going to have to do it to get back on the bus and lie down. You just have to take things really, really, really slowly. And what the, one of the first signs of altitude sickness is you start throwing up. So I know that is something that that some people that happens to some people. And there's nothing you can do when that starts happening. You actually have to just go down. We're looking at about what four thousand three hundred meters above sea level. That's quite high. Yeah, that's that's at a common. The border crossing was even higher than that. Oh really? And you can hear the bus struggling. With, so with an overnight bus, and I woke up in the middle of the night, and you can actually hear the bus struggling up the hills as the engine. There's something to do with the oxygen and the engine, and um, there are a couple of times when the engine actually cut out, which is not really something that you want to experience no. when you on a big double-decker bus in the middle of the night on, on steep, winding mountain passes. But you know, the engine failed a few times, and then the bus sure. had to stop, and I don't know what they do to sort it out, but... We did get there in one piece. It's a case of you, if you want to go to the Atacama Desert, you really have to want to go there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 a bit of a journey from South Africa, but it's all part of the adventure. And that's what I love about traveling in South America, similar to traveling in Africa, is that every journey you take is an adventure. It's all part of the fun. As long as you have the right attitude, then it is fun, you know, then it's not stressful. Sure. Okay. And basically, you said when you got there, you stayed at, in the Atacama Desert at a place called Explorer Atacama, which apparently you can book through the Mantis Collection. Yes, you can book it through the Mantis Collection in South Africa. And I'd really recommend the large, fantastic food, amazing guides, beautiful location. And it was just, I think the lodge really made the experience because the guides really brought the Atacama to life in terms of um, explaining about the desert adapted plants and animals and the volcanoes and the geology. I mean, you could go to the Atacama and sort of, um, you know, do activities on your own, but you're not really going to get the full story of that place and just how fascinating it is and how unique and different it is to lots of other deserts. Well, gosh, Sarah, it sounds amazing. And it sounded quite almost a testing trip for you health-wise, you know, when it comes to the altitude and the altitude sickness and all that sort of thing, but you still had an amazing time by all accounts. Hopefully the rest of your travels in South America weren't quite as uh, taxing, if you like. Hopefully they're a little calmer than that, and we'll chat with you about those in the coming weeks. But thank you very much indeed for telling us about your journey to the Atacama Desert this evening. That was Sarah Duff, and she's a, a journalist, a travel journalist. She's traveling around the world, and she's been spending some time in South America recently. And if you'd like to follow her and find out where she's been and what she's done and have a look at her absolutely stunning photographs, take a look at her blog. It's Duff's Suitcase.com. And if you're interested in finding out more about staying in the Atacama Desert, the Explorer Atacama, Sarah says, is the best place to stay. And you can book that through the Mantis Collection here in South Africa. And then just go onto the website. It's mantiscollection.com. And just a reminder, Sarah's blog, duffssuitcase.com. Time to travel with Karen Key. Well, that's the end of Time to Travel for this week. I'm Karen Key. Thanks for joining me this evening. And just a reminder, if you've missed any information, you'd like to find out more about something and you didn't manage to write it down, you can find it on Facebook. It's Travel on SAFM. Or you can just email me on travel at SAFM.com. 
www.sbs.co.za. And I'll be back with you on Monday evening next week with the Law Report. And coming up on the Law Report next week, it's Property Law with Attorney Ishmael Mohammed. So join me for that. So if you have any questions you want to get through before the time, just drop me a mail to to uh, law at safm.co.za with those questions or otherwise preferably we'd love to speak with you so give us a call on monday evening at just after the nine o'clock news and we'll be chatting about property law with ishmael muhammad and of course lots of more interesting programs coming up next week and hopefully i'll be able to get back in touch with sarah duff again to find out about her stay in bolivia because she really went all over south america this time well it's time for some nighttime music with stephen kirker and stephen i don't know if you're as green as me with envy but uh, yes